Welcome to Expresso Crime, a podcast all about crimes, short enough to listen to while you enjoy your cup of coffee. Hello, hello. Welcome to a new episode of Expresso Crime. Episode 63 is the 10 of America's most notorious kidnappings, but first a current crime. So investigators have put together a timeline of events of a crime that recently happened. They believe the husband attacked and killed his wife while inside their home, then wrapped her body in trash bags. While covering the body with dirt to bury it, he is believed to have suffered a deadly heart attack. And now on to 10 of America's most notorious kidnappings. First on the list, Charles Lindbergh was a pioneer of international aviation. He was the first person to do a solo transatlantic flight in 1972. With his fame, he and his wife moved to a rural property in New Jersey to try and stay out of the media or spotlight. March 1st, 1932, Charles heard a noise from his kitchen that sounded like a wooden container cracking shut. He then went into his son's nursery, where he discovered a ransom letter on the windowsill and a broken ladder outside. In exchange for his son's safe return, the note requested $50,000. With the help of the FBI, the family desperately searched. They paid the $50,000 ransom, but the kidnapper did not return the baby. On March 12, 1932, the the baby's body was discovered dead over a mile from the family's home. The boy had been missing for at least two months and is thought to have died on the day he was stolen. His skull had a hole in it and his bones had been fractured multiple times. The child's body part had been eaten off in several places and it appeared animals had gotten to the body first. Richard Humpman, who had a criminal record, was eventually named the kidnapper. He was arrested after he used part of the ransom money. He was found guilty of the crime and sentenced to death in what was nicknamed the Trial of the Century. On April 3, 1936, he died in the electric chair. This case prompted Congress to establish the Federal Kidnapping Act of 1932, making it illegal to transport a kidnapped victim beyond state lines. The law is commonly referred to as the Lindbergh Law, which we will talk about later on in this episode. Number two on the list is Cynthia Ann Parker. She was kidnapped in 1836 as a nine-year-old during an attack on her family settlement. She was adopted by the kidnappers and ended up marrying one of them and having three kids. After 24 years of living with them, the Texas Rangers were able to relocate her and recapture her, bringing her back to her family. She refused to adjust to life among her family and tried to escape. Ten years after being returned to her family, her daughter died of pneumonia, prompting her to starve herself to death. Number three on the list. On July 1st, 1874, four-year-old Charlie Ross and his five-year-old brother Walter were playing in the front yard of their family's home. A horse-drawn carriage pulled up to the residence and the boys were approached by two men who offered candy and fireworks if they took a ride with them. The boys agreed and were transported through Philadelphia to a store where Walter was directed to buy fireworks inside with 25 cents given to him. Walter did so, but the carriage left without him. Charlie Ross was taken away and never seen again. Christian K. Ross, the boy's father, began receiving ransom demands from the apparent kidnappers. They generally requested a ransom of $20,000 or $40,000 today. The notes cautioned against a police intervention and threatened Charlie's life if Christian did not cooperate. While the kidnappers had assumed the family was wealthy because of their large house and the business, the family was actually in huge debt due to the stock market crash of 1873. Seeing no way to pay the ransom, Christian went to the police. Several attempts were made to provide the kidnappers with ransom money, 
but in each case, the kidnappers failed to appear. Eventually, communication stopped. The Rosses spent approximately $60,000 looking for their son, though they never saw him again. Number four on the list, June Rombles. She was six years old when she was taken by a man on April 25, 1934 at 3 p.m. from her school. A witness saw the man forcefully putting her into his car as she was picking up her son from the school, but assumed it was a family matter and decided not to interfere. Two hours later, a seven-year-old boy who was paid 25 cents delivered the ransom note to June's father. The ransom note de demanded $15,000 in exchange for June's safe return. The father began talking with the kidnapper who identified himself as Z. The father began talking with the kidnapper who identified himself as Z in all the communications. Her father did not go to police immediately, though local law enforcement did become involved. The second ransom note reduced the ransom to $10,000 and instructed her father where to deliver the money. He attempted to deliver the money to a specified strip of the highway, but no one showed up. On April 28th, two men in a brown car robbed a cafe. It was said they had a child that looked similar to June. The father's twin brother also helped to search for his niece using an airplane, especially throughout this. On May 7th, the chief criminal deputy announced that June had been found and would be returned to her parents within 24 hours. This came from the sighting of, a, of June with a couple headed to the U.S.-Mexico border. The announcement turned out to be premature as June was still missing. On May 14th, Arizona governor received a postcard at his office describing June's location in the desert outside of Tucson. The postcard had a Chicago postmark. This tip led a team to search for over two hours before discovering a small metal box that was three feet in the ground and disguised on top. June was inside and alive and overall in good condition considering. She did have heat blisters, ant bites, and her ankles hurt from being chained to an iron stake in the desert for a total of 19 days. The kidnapper had left her there with fruit, bread, jam, potato chips, and grand crackers. While she somehow did survive and was alone there for 19 days, her kidnapper was never identified. Number five on the list is Bobby Greenlease. He was born to multimillionaire Robert and Virginia Greenlease on February 3rd, 1947. In September 1953, Carl Hall, 34, and Bonnie Hetty, 41, kidnapped Bobby from a Catholic preschool in Kansas City. The kidnappers lived together nearby. In the early 1930s, Carl had attended school with Paul, who was Bobby's older adopted brother. Carl had planned for years to victimize his former classmate's wealthy family. Bonnie visited Bobby's school and persuaded a nun that she was his aunt, telling her that his mother had suffered a heart attack and was in the hospital. She then took Bobby away in a taxi. When another nun from the school called to inquire about the heart attack and how she was doing, she discovered what really happened. Local law enforcement and the FBI was quickly contacted, and in the meantime, Carl and Bonnie took Bobby across state lines to Kansas, where Carl shot him to death. They then took the child's body and buried him in the backyard of Bonnie's house. After the murder, Carl and Bonnie sent Bobby's father messages in the mail and phone calls demanding a ransom of 600000 which would be $6.1 today. They were desperate to save their son. They held off on authorities and paid the money. At that time, it was the largest ransom ever paid in American history until the 1972 kidnapping of Virginia Piper, which we'll talk about later in this episode. 
Carl became convinced that police would trace him and Bonnie to the crime, so he randomly decided to drive to St. Louis. The couple collected the ransom and fled. Once in St. Louis, Carl left Bonnie in the middle of the night from their hotel room. He contacted some of his friends to get their help to divert police attention. The plan was for his friend Sandra O'Day to fly to L.A. and mail a letter he had written. She had caught a glimpse of the ransom money and shortly after, St. Louis police learned about the large sum of money and brought him in for questioning. Once he was in for questioning, he gave up Bonnie and the police found her at her home and then they discovered Bobby's body in a shallow grave in her backyard. Because they took Bobby over state lines, the crime became a federal case under the Federal Kidnapping Act, which was in case one. Carl and Bonnie pled guilty to kidnapping. The jury deliberated an hour and eight minutes before recommending a death sentence. The two were executed together in the Missouri gas chamber on December 18, 1953. Bonnie was the third woman ever to be executed by U.S. federal authorities. Number six, Virginia Piper. She was the wife of Harry Piper, a chairman and CEO. She was kidnapped on July 27, 1972, while gardening outside her home. She was held chained to a tree for two nights. After receiving a payment of $1 million for ransom, which is equivalent to $6.48 million today, uh, the kidnappers called an unconnected person and told them her location. Shortly after, she was found and released by the FBI. Two men were charged with the kidnapping in 1977, just days before the five-year statute of limitations. Out of the $1 million ransom payment, only $4,000 was ever recovered, and in 1972, the two men were acquitted. Number seven, John Paul Getty III. He was a grandson to American oil tycoon J. Paul Getty, who was once the richest man in the world. John Paul was 16 and living in Rome when he was kidnapped. The kidnappers demanded $17 million in ransom. His grandfather was reluctant to pay, but after his severed ear was received by a newspaper, he negotiated a payment of $2.2 million, and Getty was released five months after being kidnapped. That is a long time. Getty developed an addiction to drugs and alcohol soon after, eventually leading to an overdose and stroke, which left him severely disabled for the rest of his life. Number eight, Brooke Hart. He was the son of Alexander Hart and the owner of L. Hart and Son Department Store in downtown San Jose in California. Just before 6 p.m. on Thursday, November 9th, 1933, Brooke Hart, who was 22 at the time, went to go pick up his car behind the department store as he agreed to drive his dad to a meeting. When Brooke did not show up to pick up his father, his father became concerned. Just after 8 p.m. that evening, Brooke's friend phoned to say that he didn't turn up for an appointment, so the father called the police to see if he had been involved in a car accident because it was just not like him at all. According to the parking lot attendant, Brooke had left the lot at 6.05 p.m. He was later spotted around 6.30 p.m. And finally, someone else saw him by his car at 7 p.m. They went by again at 8.30, but the car was only there and no one else. At 9.30 that night, his sister answered the telephone at the family home and was told that Brooke had been kidnapped and that instructions for his return would be provided later. An hour later... By the sounds of it, the same man called and told her that her brother would be returned upon the payment of $40,000. Delivery instructions would be provided the next day. Local law enforcement was quickly brought into the case and the phone was 
phone call was traced to San Francisco and connected to the Whitcomb Hotel. The search initially focused on other areas than the call because they thought it could be a decoy. Brooks' wallet was found in San Francisco on a guardrail. A compromise ransom telegram from San On November 12th, another ransom letter came through, this time saying that half would be fine, so $20,000 instead. The family was contacted again the next day when a letter postmarked in Sacramento arrived at the department store. It instructed the father to have a radio installed in a car because the ransom instructions would be broadcast over a radio station. The kidnapper also instructed the father to be ready to drive to deliver the ransom. However, the father never learned how to drive. Later that day, the father posted a $5,000 reward for his son's safe return and a promise to drop any further investigations upon his return. With the reward now being offered, the police announced they would not be tracing any calls to the family's home. Of course, this was not true. On Tuesday, November 14th, another ransom note arrived. This time it was postmarked in San Francisco, instructing the father to place the ransom in a black bag and to drive it to L.A., That night, his father received a call from a man claiming to be a son's kidnapper who instructed him to take the night train to L.A. The authorities staked out the train station. They mistakenly arrested a bank teller out for an evening walk. The next day, a sign was placed in the window of the Hart store stating that the father did not drive. A call was received that night again demanding that the father drive to deliver the ransom Uh, The father demanded proof that his son was with the caller. The caller stated that Brooke was being held at a safe location. Because of the phone tap, the call was traced to a garage in downtown San San Jose, but the caller was gone by the time the authorities were able to arrive. Another demand arrived the following day on November 16th, again ordering the father to drive with the ransom. That night, another call was received and the demand was then repeated. The call was traced to a payphone in a parking garage. This was only 150 feet from the police office, so a police chief and a sheriff were able to rush there and they were able to arrest Thomas Harold Thurmond just as he was hanging up the phone. At 3 a.m., after hours of questioning, Thomas signed a confession which he claimed to have bound Brooks' hands with wire and tossing him over the bridge between 7 and 7 30 on the night of the kidnapping. He also stated that he had an accomplice, John Holmes, who was unemployed and separated from his wife and two children. He was arrested that night at his motel. According to Thomas, John Holmes approached him with a plan six weeks prior after he had been separated from his family. At 1 p.m. the next day, Holmes signed a confession admitting that he and Thomas had kidnapped Brooke and thrown him off the bridge into the San Francisco Bay. According to the confession, they held Brooke at gunpoint to drive to the location on the bridge the men ordered Brooke out of his car and one of the kidnappers struck him twice on the head from behind with a concrete block block until he was unconscious then they bound his arms with wire and tied two 22 pound concrete blocks to his feet before dumping him off the bridge into the bay the tide was out and there was only a few feet of water at the base of the bridge the kidnappers then shot Brooke killing him A few hours later, they then placed the first telephone call to the Hart family home, demanding $40,000 for his return. The official search for the body ended on November 25th. The next day, two duck hunters discovered a badly decayed and crab-eaten body approximately half a mile south of the bridge. The body was identified by the coroner and Brooks' friends and employees later that day. 
it was Brooke. According to the autopsy, Brooke had died from drowning and there was no bullet wounds found. The body being found caused a huge public outroar. There was lynchings and they were carried out by a mob of San Jose uh, citizens in St. James Park across from the county jail. They were broadcasted as a live event by LA radio stations. The killings of the suspects were endorsed by the governor who said he would pardon anyone convicted of the lynchings. Reporters, photographers, along with an estimated 3,000 to 10,000 people were witness to it. When newspapers published photos, identifiable faces were deliberately smudged so they could remain anonymous. On August 23, 1912, four-year-old Bobby Dunbar disappeared while on a fishing trip with his parents. After an eight-month nationwide search, investigators believed that they found Bobby in the hands of William Walters. The Dunbars claimed the boy was their missing son. However, Walters and Julia Anderson insisted the boy was Julia's. Julia could not afford a lawyer, and the court eventually ruled in favor of the Dunbars, naming the boy theirs. In 2004, DNA profiling established that the boy that was found with Walters and returned to the Dunbars as Bobby had not been a blood relative of the Dunbar family. While the discovery was made years and years later, it does bring up some questions and concerns, but on the DNA profiling note, Episode 61 was DNA and crime if you missed it and wanted to go back and catch up. And now the last one on the list and kind of a good note. Number 10. Number 10. The 1976 Chowchilla kidnapping. It was the abduction of a school bus driver and 26 children. Their ages were 5 to 14 in California on July 15, 1976. The kidnappers held them in a box truck buried in an open pit mine, hoping to hold them for ransom. After 16 hours underground, the the driver and the children dug themselves out and escaped. The pit mine's owner's son, Frederick, and two of his friends that were brothers, James and Richard, were convicted of the crime. Each received a sentence of life with possibility of parole. In 2015, the brothers had been paroled, and on March 29th of this year, Frederick was recommended to be released on parole. And that wraps up today's episode of 10 of America's Most Notorious Kidnappings. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you Sunday for more Sunday Scaries.